Hello everyone and welcome to this new session of MemCast. I have Dr. Nicholas Wong with me today and we're going to speak about pyrexia of unknown origin. Hello Nick. Hi Christina, thanks for inviting me back again for another chat. So PUOs, an interesting topic. They've suddenly provided a lot of head scratching for my team on the infectious diseases unit. I don't think I can teach you everything there is to know about investigating and managing a given PUO in the course of a 10 minute podcast, but let's go with some basic principles and take it from there. There's a debate about how would we actually define pyrex of unknown origin and what type of timelines are we talking about? Sure. So the earliest definition probably date back to at least the 1960s. So at that point, they didn't have widespread access to blood tests and things. So they would say persistent fever above 38.3, despite weeks of investigation in hospital. I mean, these days, if you spend three weeks in hospital, nothing's happened. You think there's something seriously wrong. So now we condense it to roughly at least a week's worth of testing in hospital, maybe three days in some cases, depending on how efficient your team is. But suddenly a consistent documented fever of about 38 degrees would be the bare minimum. And most of the time the patient's been symptomatic for at least three weeks before they've actually presented to medical services. It's not actually a particularly rare or obscure syndrome causing the patient's presentation, but more an unusual manifestation of something. So I guess a few caveats to what we're talking about with POs here. The patients we're, we're going to be thinking about today are largely not in the compromise. They have absolutely got other things, but they're not neutropenic or on hefty doses of chemotherapy or something like that. In those circumstances, don't try to be too clever and treat them promptly for sepsis. But for a normal and otherwise stable patient who just has a fever and systemic symptoms but isn't actually looking that sick, I would encourage people listening in not to just rush in with blind antibiotics or steroids or whatever, because you'll really mask the symptoms and hamper the diagnostic yield like that. I mean, as an internal medicine practitioner, we should be familiar with what sepsis looks like, what a sick patient looks like, and what someone who has a problem but doesn't need immediate intervention looks like. So, in terms of breaking down the main categories of patients presenting with a pyrexia and origin, the main headings we think of are infective, which is why they come to people like me, neoplastic, and inflammatory slash autoimmune type conditions. There's a small sprinkling of other things as well, such as drug-induced fevers and the odd familial syndrome, such as familial Mediterranean fever, but that's pretty fine print. So, when it comes to looking through someone with a PUO, I really encourage a back-to-basics approach. Every single heading you learned in taking a history of medical school should be explored, and I'm not saying that flippantly, because you'd be surprised at what questions can provide the relevant clues to point you in a certain direction. So, Detailed history is really important. The temporal relationship, the presence and absence of certain features, they point you in certain directions with a bit of experience, be it that I think this might sound more infective, or maybe this is more pointing towards a rheumatological cause, or this smells like a primary malignancy of some sort. Headings that people should consider occupation, a detailed travel history along with relevant exposure while abroad, unusual hobbies like water sports, outdoors type of activities animal exposure, ill contacts, relevant family history, produce. Doing a really thorough systems review can be quite helpful because you might actually jar something loose in the patient's memory and they'll go, actually, no one's asked me that before, but I, I have had this symptom and that might send you in a certain direction to go down. Asking the patient, do you actually notice the fever or is it something else that's brought you into hospital? And is there any correlation with other symptoms? So, as if you start feeling really sweaty when it happens, 
happens, or do you get supply bars? Unusual questions might point you in the same direction as well, such as asking the patient, does alcohol trigger your pain and fever and sweats? Because that is quite suggestive of lymphoma, as an example. Think about every aspect of the patient's past medical, surgical and psychiatric history. Have they had TB before, decades ago, and just forgot to mention it until now? Have they had an operation recently and had some sort of prosthetic material to fix it? Could they be immunocompromised or have some risk factor for immunocompromise? Or is there a psychiatric diagnosis here and it's actually one of the drugs driving the problem? Take your physical examination seriously and don't just limit yourselves to listening to the heart, the chest and pathways in the abdomen. It's really useful to confirm the fever actually exists and get the patient to report the symptoms so they can be correlated with observations. Unfortunately, one of the most easy way of doing this is to actually admit the patient so they're getting regular temperature checks. But sometimes in the outpatient setting, we ask the patient to keep a diary as well and to buy a good thermometer. Some of the older textbooks out there suggest that using things like spotting a fever pattern, if it happens at certain times of day or every other day or something like that, you might get a feel for a diagnosis. But I find in clinical practice, it doesn't really narrow things down that much. Check for things like splinter hemorrhages, lymphadenopathy, rashes, joint pathology, and cerebral features. Obvious things to do in a geriatric population, but to check their pressure areas. Have they got an enormous pressure sore because they've been bedbound for ages? Have you thought about intravascular devices, such as a midline, a central line, dialysis catheter, or something else prosthetic that shouldn't really be there? So once you've got your clues from the history and the examination, We'll start thinking about the tests because we're all about fancy investigations, aren't we? At a minimum standard, we would want some routine bloods, including renal, liver function, CRP, other inflammatory markers, multiple sets of blood cultures, off antibiotics, if that's all possible. With regards to blood cultures for our listeners, obviously it's important to take them whilst they're not on any antibiotics, and it's important to take them whilst they're pyrexial? Preferably, yes. I would encourage a decent amount of blood to be put into each bottle, at least 5 mils, if not 10. And if you can only get a small amount of blood off the patient, put it all into one bottle, rather than trying to even it out between the two, because that will help your yield. The more blood you put into a blood culture bottle, the more likely that you'll find something. If the patient's already been started on antibiotics, either if you can stop the treatment, do that, and reculture again in a day. Alternatively, Wait for the next interval if you think the patient's too unstable to wait for a second so, so to come off the antibiotics. Would the lab uh, do anything different if we specify that the patient has pyrexia of unknown cause under request? Would they put them in different environments? To be honest, they would process it differently if you indicate a relevant travel history or if you put specific clinical details like you're worried about a certain infectious pathology. So let's say the patient's been overseas or was HIV positive or something, they'll be processing it in a high-risk section of the lab, which most hospitals have. Other standard tests we would recommend, besides the routine blood and blood cultures, HIV testing, urine and sputum cultures, and a chest x-ray would be an expected starting point. None of these are particularly expensive or fancy tests, but you'd be surprised at how often it gives you an avenue to start going down. Then you start thinking about what localising features does the patient have, and then investigating that area accordingly. So they have something pointing in a certain organ system or a certain part of the body. Start by imaging that, for example, be it echocardiogram or CT imaging or an MRI. 
Acute phase proteins like CRP aren't very specific, but point towards the natural pathology being present. But I suppose one caveat I should warn you guys about is not requesting blind contagiorops or making TB testing on people, because this doesn't rule in or rule out active disease, and overall doesn't help your diagnostic attempts. A few other caveats. If the patient has troubles, please keep malaria in mind. That is a life-threatening diagnosis and needs prompt treatment, plus minus dis urgent discussion with the local infectious diseases centre. If they have been abroad, get in touch. We're happy to give a few suggestions or tests that you might want to consider. If your patient turns out to have HIV, Chancellor will take care over their care because the differential diagnosis for a PUO in someone with HIV or is otherwise badly immunocompromised is pretty considerable. Depending on where the patient has been and what they've been up to, we can ask for various serological tests looking for exotic pathologies like atypical pneumonias, leptospirosis, and various viral type problems. But sometimes we might ask for additional specialist help from services like the UK's imported fever service. So what these guys do is, if you give a relevant travel history to them and send them a sample of blood, they'll do a geographic panel depending on where the patient has been. So let's say they've been to Sub-Saharan Africa, they'll test for everything that's endemic in the country that the patient has been to. Bear in mind, this usually needs consultant's authorization from a microbiologist or an ID physician before they're prepared to run it. I don't often encourage blind use of autoimmune screens as well, unless you have a specific diagnosis in mind, because the tests that you run for autoimmune pathology or rheumatological type disorders are only as good as clinical acumen driving them. So a lot of them can give very non-specific or cross-reactive results, and so it helps to have the right specialist see the patient before recommending tests like this. One of the main reasons we failed to come up with a diagnosis for people with PUOs is because they've been hit with blind treatments, be it antibiotics, steroids, or something else that dampens down the biopsy yield. If you take a diagnosis of lymphoma, for example, which is extremely common as a cause of persistent fevers and sweats, and we pick a fair few up of these every year, one dose of steroid is enough to cause massive cell necrosis and completely hamper the diagnostic yield across the board. So please think very carefully before you start disease-modifying treatments like that. Just one final point I'd like to make on biopsies and other invasive investigations. Routine histology may not be enough to give you the answer you seek. So aside from sending your samples off for histology, take an extra sample for culture if you can, or ask the surgeon or radiologist to divide the sample and send some of it to micro, because you'll never grow anything from something that's been picked informally. When would you advise to start treatment? I guess empirical treatment is something we really only offer as a last resort if it's okay. too dangerous or too difficult to obtain something concrete to give us an answer. So if the patient refuses or is too medically unfit for an invasive operation or something else to obtain a diagnosis, then we may consider empirical antibiotics, TB therapy or something else, depending on what we clinically think the diagnosis is. I mean, generally, prior to embarking on an empirical treatment, they'll have been through an exhaustive list of tests, including things like a staging CT scan of the body, echocardiography, plus minus interval scanning, if the symptoms have really been going on for ages. Neuroimaging or imaging of the spine can give rise to a surprising number of clues. And if you're working in a, in a centre where PET-CT is available, this is particularly helpful as well. But 
a lot of the time we make a diagnosis before reaching that stage of investigation. It really comes down to the clues that you get from your initial assessment of the patient's story, and then you can decide whether you, you think you need something like a scan, a biopsy of a certain part of the body, a bone marrow examination, or something else. Ultimately, even if you fail to reach a diagnosis, despite all of these investigations, if you reach all of these steps, ask for all these tests, and you still don't have an answer, you'll find that the prognosis tends to be actually quite favourable in the majority of these patients who still don't have an answer despite extensive investigation. But if you do find something along the way, treat it accordingly. Thank you, Nick, and thank you all for listening. Come back next week for a new episode.